to this whole riddle me that The rest of y'all know where I'm lurking, yeah Can none of y'all mirror me back? Yeah, hear me rap, it's like hand G rapping is prime I'm young H.O. Rap's great for dead Back to take over the globe Welcome back to Miami Nice A podcast all about the 2006 film Miami Vice uh, we are back after our deep cover hiatus. We are actually talking about Miami Vice this time. My amazing partner, Blake Howard, is here. Blake, how are you doing? Katie, I'm in so deep. I almost forgot what it was like to be on this show. I'm so happy to be back. 2023 is exciting already for Miami Nice Heads. And I feel like over the holidays on our socials, on our Discord, people have been like frothing. And it's the season of Colin Farrell. It's just people are just like, Colin Farrell this, Colin Farrell that, and we're just sort of lounging back on a banana lounger, wearing our Fiends for Mojito shirts, swilling rum mixes and smoking and going, ah, oh, kids today, you guys yeah. wish you were on this bandwagon approximately 15 years ago, or whatever it is, almost 20 years ago now. So yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to be back. We have some great guests. Yes, uh, we have some great guests. Uh, we have two guests today. One of whom, the first guest is my good friend, Brandon Harris, who is a true Renaissance man. He's a writer. He's a former director of the Indie Memphis Film Festival. He's a filmmaker and a recovering film critic. Or do you identify as a recovering film critic, Brandon? Covering and often relapsed. And often relapsed, uh. okay. He wrote and directed the 2012 film Red Legs. He was a development exec at Amazon, working on Master, The Voyeurs, great uh, erotic thriller, by the way, Blow the Man Down, and Time, excellent films. And he's the president of I'd Watch That, a company he co-founded with Shaka King, developing TV and film projects. And we also have Jason Jeffers, who is a filmmaker from Barbados, a fellow Caribbean native like me i'm from st croix he is the co-founder of the miami-based uh third horizon film festival which has been named one of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world by movie maker magazine and he's currently producing a sci-fi film set in miami and a documentary about the fight for reparations in barbados so brandon and jason thank you for being here gentlemen thank you so much well Thanks thank for you for us. thank you for having us it's a real it's a real dream. And I have to thank you both for, you know, I, I can say you all helped get me through the pandemic. Oh, Jason. Jason. Yeah. Yeah, truly, truly. It's the best thing ever. So thank you so much for listening. We have so much fun doing this. And we probably never thought we would talk this much about Miami Vice 2006. Um, but we've turned this into the horniest modern Michael Mann campfire um, for your ears. So it's a pleasure. Now, Katie, I know a little story. Don't want to get too inside baseball. Katie has been an educator as well. Katie is obviously a fantastic and phenomenal film mind and film critic. And occasionally you and your very Renaissance man friend here, Brandon, are asked as, you know, people who've made films and people who've educated on films and people who have both been film critics to come and give notes to emerging filmmakers, maybe friends, give me some ideas, tell me what you think of a cut of a film. Can you please tell the story of how this quartet conversation originated because i woke up with a bleary-eyed text as i do often from katie in my dms on the other side of the world and i had a hilarious story about completely derailing a viewing of a friend's film to talk nothing about the film but everything about miami vice and everything about michael mann yeah i was with brandon and another friend aman abasi who uh we were 
supposed to go give notes on uh, a friend's film and we just sat around the table eating cheese and drinking wine and, and ranking Michael Mann films until our friend was like, okay, we have to start the screening now. <laughs> um, but that was when Brandon was like, when am I going to be on the podcast? <laughs> In between chocolate covered pretzels. I yes. Stop talking about Miami Vice. <laughs> and that's been the case for all of the 17 years or so since the movie came out. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, it's evergreen. As yes. Well. And then you were like, we have to get Jason also on the podcast. So that is how this all came together. Just beautiful word of mouth, uh, friends bringing friends together. So that's how it works. <laughs> the inside baseball. Fantastic. Gentlemen, I, I, I don't, I, I might start with Jason. So Jason, you said those lovely words about the shows that we've been doing. Can you tell us about your love of this very sweaty, very impressionistic, utterly freaking awesome film? Um, because I believe that both of you, um, apart from your love for it, Jason, you've actually had some experience with some of the locations that are in Miami Vice. So we will eventually get to that. But can you tell us about your love of Miami Nice? Oh man, I, you know, I have to admit when I first saw the film, I was not the champion of it that I am now. Um, I think I was too close to it. When it came out in 2006, yeah, I was, I had just, I was previously a reporter at the Miami Herald. And I think the city of Miami, I think everybody in Miami had this collective, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like, what is, you know, um, and I think with time, you know, do you have, you know, you know how it is when you, you know, maybe when you first heard your voice as a kid recorded, right? Or maybe the first time you ever saw yourself on camera and you're like, that's me. <laughs> and I think that was my reaction to the film. Um, there are, you know, no single film can uh, encapsulate the entirety of a place, but it captured so much of it. But it captured it in a way that was, I think, a bit jarring to to comprehend. Um, and I have a big, long theory about this. I don't know if this is the moment to get into this, but, um, you know, it was just with time, the more I mean, I, I spend so much time rewatching the film sometimes just looking at how he captured the Miami sky. Yes, I feel like, oh, nobody else has quite gotten. There are a few films, I should say, that have really captured what a liminal space Miami is, you know. Uh, the the surreality of it all, you know, um, so that, that that's first and foremost, what I love about it is what I what I know about the city, things that I recognize, places that I see, you know, it's yeah. And I love Brent that. Oh, that sorry, sense, I don't know. I just love that 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 phrase about the liminality of Miami. Like Absolutely. I haven't spent enough time there, really. Um, but that's such a fascinating concept. So yeah, it's it's you know Miami is a pocket universe. It's not America. It's not Latin America. It's not the Caribbean. It's a pocket universe that in that that exists at the intersection of all three of those places. Um, and I think the film gets that. You know. Um, and it, so it, it's not surprising to me that, you know, Archangel de Jesus, you know, his, sorry, I forget the name of um, where he, where his headquarters is, but it, it also. Ciudad del Este is where he's, his base. Yeah. On the tri-borders of Paraguay and Brazil. Right. Like Miami is almost like a mirror of that, right? In that yes. it's a similar space where 
it is at the intersection of a bunch of places, but it's its own thing. You know, there's a lawlessness, a frontier kind of energy to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I also come from a place like that. Right. Um, and maybe that's why this movie like immediately appealed to me is, you know, um, people don't think of Cincinnati as a tri-state area, but it's really where like the West or the Midwest, the South and the East sort of converge, you know, at the Indiana, Kentucky border with Ohio is, you know, freedom or, or slavery. It, mm. it's sort of like the, mm. the hinge point in America in many ways. And, um, and, you know, when I first saw this movie, the, the, I was studying, um, I just left film school and I had encountered the early uh, French film theory term photogene, you know, the idea of um, uh, a sort of expressionistic image that could capture uh, the essence of a place just in the shot as opposed to in narrative. And when I think of movies that do that uh, in, in contemporary times, my advice is like near the top of the list. It, it's beyond how striking it looks. It also feels like a historical document in that movies will never look this way again. Yes. Yeah, totally. It's um, really of a time and place in a very specific way. Yeah. And, and that moment in the middle aughts that you know, you see the Viper camera and the early red and the way in which those kind of translate to being projected on a big screen, which is already kind of lost now, right? If you watch the movie on HBO Max on your computer, it's a <laughs> vastly different experience than watching the theatrical cut um, or even the DVD of the director's cut with that remarkable boat chase that I'm glad was cut <laughs> because it's like the, the later boat sequences have more of a grandeur because it doesn't sort of like, you know, shoot its wad at the beginning of the movie. Um, but yeah, I, I, that notion of like Miami being a, a, this kind of, uh, you know, tri-state, this meeting point between different cultures, um, uh, Archangel's character being from that sort of Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil border, and, and, and my own place in the tri-state area of Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. I don't know. They, they seem to have some connection to me. I love both those things of those liminal spaces and man seems to be like obsessed with them. Like he, as a Chicago native, like loves LA for that very reason. Like he feels like it's a liminal space. It's always about travelers who have come there for some, whether it's, you know, economic reasons or it's, or it's, you know, work or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's like that, I don't know, that seeking out of fortune. And I, but I, I've never been to Miami either. And I'm kind of like, it, it feels like one of those bucket list places and probably in a more like overt way you used to think about it with things like New Orleans. You'd be like, oh, that's more of like a, a cultural melting pot just because of the makeup of the different cultures and ethnicities who sort of occupied that space earlier on in, in time. And that, as that has evolved, it's sort of got, got its own personality. But but Miami is like, like you said, it's not only South because of its proximity like to the Southern American continent, but like the whole Cuban triangulation of Miami is another fantastic mixture of that. Um, and you said something, Brandon, which I love, which is about like when we were, when we were trying to push the limits of digital photography, it was about expanding into the new planes that made whatever this new medium this alternate medium to film was it was about how different can it be from cinema, cinema that we've seen before like 35 millimeter film and then almost it like crests with michael mann in like 2006 and then in 2007 like david fincher found the hack completely 
with Zodiac and made it look like a not like something that had been stuffed in the Warner archives and then just pulled out from like 1976 or 74 or something like that and just like thrown on a screen. And then ever since then, it was like, oh, how can we actually make digital go back to look like 35 mil? And that's what's sort of frustrating is you you go like, no, you what the purpose of this, e the medium is, is like, what does this thing do to make, to, to create a texture that is unique to not only the medium, but the place. And so it's like, I think of like Tangerine as another great film that I really enjoy of like using a medium and like, sort of puts a big exclamation mark on like we're using something that's like an iPhone and it looks different. It's not film. It's it, it, it but it's part of like the characters. And I think that man kind of gets that, that fusion of like, what is the texture of this movie? What is the aesthetic? And then what does it mean for the characters? And just like being unabashed with that. I think it's, it, it, it's one of those films that rare ones that does it. So like harmoniously. Absolutely. Well I, as filmmakers, are you guys like thinking, I like, I mean, I imagine that you're make, you're talking about formats and digital and film and all this stuff. And like, what are these conversations that you're having and how might they be informed by uh, our love of Michael Mann? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think, you know, I was already a big fan of his before the film came out and it threw me for such a, a whirl when it did. You know, again, like I was saying, it was so jarring, but it really kind of hit me to how you know, not solely him, but just just how much the format, the medium can be can be messed with to really capture it. Because I, th I sorry, I have to get very woody woo about this. Please, but, please do. But, get woody, get woody. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's sorry, my my chair keeps falling. Um, he's with with the format that he's using it's almost like as if he's puncturing a myth that he created because yeah. i think one of the things that often gets lost in the conversation not just about the 2006 film but also the television show is that so much of modern miami was created by the original television show yes mm -hmm. so much of of you know when he came to miami um to 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 make the show back then so much of the glam, so much of the chic wasn't there yet. So much of that was created by the show. And then the city evolved to mirror the television show. Wow. And that's something which gets lost in conversation a lot. And I think even even many of us, you know, in Miami, um, you know, we have a strange we have a strange relationship with the television show. And I I I I'm I'm somewhat hesitant to say we in Miami, even though I've been there what, like twenty-five years work for the newspaper, all these things. I'm not from Miami originally, but even still, you know, so many of us in Miami, when we talk about the TV show and just Miami Vice lore, uh, you know, they, I mean, every it feels like every five minutes, there's like some, not as much recently, but there used to be, you know, be it the Design Preservation League having a symposium or, 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 or a lecture about how much Miami Vice influenced the TV show or the museum is doing an exhibition or, you know, it's so much of the fabric of what the city is. And so then what he does with the film is he, it's like a metaliminal loop-de-loop, -loop, right? <laughs> it's like he's puncturing the the the, the fabric, the, the mythology that he helped create, the veneer that he helped create to say, well, what's behind this fantasy that I in turn helped create? 
so that when you come to that moment where Sonny is staring out over the horizon, you know, he's asking himself within the context of the film, you get the impression that he's asking himself, well, what's real? What's really going on here? But if you look at that on a meta level, right, it's a character within a film that is itself referencing a constructed reality. So he's, he's puncturing reality on two levels. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. So you, have, you have this character saying, well, what is real? And he is kind of burdened by so many levels of myth-making and, 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 and construction of reality. This is some Alan Moore shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. I love that we just said this is some Alan Moore shit. Good. <laughs> this is good. Wait, no, I, I was, when I watched the film again recently, I, I recall that moment distinctly where they're talking to Eddie Marsan's character. Who is doing this remarkable like North Florida like hit one of the great one of the great accents <laughs> like a remarkable accent and um and it's just like an absurd scene and the writing has this almost like Mehmetian like ping pong quality yes. between the cops as they're like intimidating him and in the middle it's it it really has some like remarkable unintentional comedy like there's a moment where Jamie Fox uh uh or uh Marcin says uh, they're vertically integrated, you know, and Jamie Foxx is like, what does that mean? They have an erection all day. <laughs> and in the midst of that scene, like, it's almost like Sonny is tired of it. Like, he's like, what is my life? Yes. <laughs> yeah. AUC, you know, Colombian right wing paramilitaries. You know who they are? They are vertically integrated. They you are. mean they walk around with constant erections? No. They farm, process, produce, export. I know what it means. No, see, it gives them attitude. A player negotiates too hard and you never hear from him again because these guys kill everything. I gotta know what's the skinny. It's none of your fucking business. It can come back on me, baby. Can't come back on you, baby. I'm not sure to that. Hey, Sunshine, when has Rico or Sonny ever lied to you? Huh? I mean, when has anything Rico told you not to happen exactly like he said? You made a 15% commission or three money laundering prosecutions I put you into. You know, which is why you live in your $4 million condo and you question Rico and Sonny. Oh. Fuck that. I will cap your skanky ass and throw it out that goddamn balcony. Yeah, then we can kick back and watch Marlon's highlights on this 65-inch plasma. After we clean this place up, don't you ever put anything away? Plus, he's going to commission Jose Yero for putting you to Jose Yero. And it's, it's almost like an Antonio movie, a moment of an Antonio movie, where he, like, you know, he's going to stare off, and then we just, the sound drops out. Yeah. And we just get the horizon. And it, it's almost like resets you in, in reality amidst a movie that is, you know, a, a genre of fantasy. Yeah. Um... And there are several moments like that throughout the film. Uh, the sequence in, in Havana is, is peppered with a couple of them. But, um, and even the John, um, the John Hawks opening. It's like, here's oh, all this action. Awesome. Here's all this frenetic craziness, kidnappings, undercover agents being shot and killed. Like crippling, cripplingly tragic revelations that's, you know, his wife has been murdered by this Aryan Brotherhood. And then the movie just does this glacial kind of lean away from the actual narrative and just stares at the breeze in a windsock on a bridge and the music soars and you're like 
This is like a massive inhale that is not necessarily about movement, propulsion. It's like it takes these little moments and then bang, we're back to the story again. And it feels like, um, yeah, it's something really special about that. But I love what you both said just there in different ways. My, I had a great um, supervisor at university who uh, helped me construct my uh, uh, like a thesis that I did when I was studying about Michael Mann. And when we were talking about Miami Vice, because we were talking about style and we we're talking about authorship and stuff like that, like my homework assignment was, he's like, I, I made him watch Miami Vice with me. He's one of the first people Katie I forced to watch Miami Vice, I think, <laughs> um, around the time that it was released. Because I was like, um, as Katie would say, I was Miami Vice pilled from like second one in the cinema. <laughs> and and so I he was trying to show it to as many people as I could. And he watched it and he goes, um, you need to go and watch Antonioni. Like he's like, Michael Mann, Make, feel, feels like a he feels like he's pulling from Antonioni so much um and yeah I think what you said about that like uh Jason you're talking about like that su sort of sublime moment like myth busting uh, his own myth it, it's there's this weird feedback loop that's happening um with with Miami Vice because it's like Miami Vice looks a certain way that then and and approaches narrative in a certain way that then has influence on cinema and then it feels like it almost comes back around to like then influence almost all the way to like john mctiernan's die hard especially in sort of action machismo movies and then it flips right back around again to like you know film clips and fincher and then michael bay and then like bad boys and then we come back we've come all the way back around and it just feels like they've put a a filter on what Miami is through bad boys. Right, right. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I went back um, in, in, in preparing for this. I was so excited. I went back and I went into the Miami Herald archives to read um, just stories written about this, about, <gasps> the, you know, about the lore. And most of the stuff I was able to find was about the TV show, not about yes. the film. But it's, interesting how those articles are relevant to the film in different ways yes like i found they quoted um in one of the early miami herald articles they in turn quoted um an article that was in new york magazine reviewing the first season of the tv show and you read it and you like wait are they they're talking about the tv show or are they talking about <laughs> the movie because uh, this writer john leonard said it is he, describing the first season of the tv show mind you he says that it was a surreal sandwiching of abstract art and broken mirrors and picture postcards. There is no murder, there is only art. Seen through filters of psychedelic lollipop dissolved in montage piled under by superimpositions of the ghostly and the slick. And, and, and you know, I think it's easy to forget just how much of a, um, just how much the TV show changed everything. Right. Yeah. So it was it was almost like it was essential for, for Michael Mann to go into the film in that spirit and say, well, I have to change everything again. Right. Like I have to be um, to be as revolutionary in my approach to this as I was in the making of the television show, you know, because to just replicate the television show, which is what everybody was expecting. Um, and what certainly I think people in Miami were expecting, which is why the film kind of landed like a wet fart when it came out. Like, <laughs> everybody was like, wait, this is not, you know. Um, but again, puncturing that myth, you know, um, and this surreal kind of deconstruction, peeling back the layers of what that 
you know i mean even miami itself is a constructed space right even miami itself is was always it, it it's it's crazy that it's even a city it's so young um so much younger than you know it's 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 barely a hundred years old you compare that to most city you know so many cities around the united states so again the layers of reality like the city like what is real about the city in real life right and then you have this tv show that comes along and creates this i mean there's stories about michael mann making the 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 um the first season and flying in you know i found another article in the herald and it was talking about uh, 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 a Miami Design Preservation League guy was saying that for the first season, Michael Mann flew in tropical fish from South Africa <laughs> to put in an aquarium in the basement of an abandoned building on Miami Beach to make it look like a club. Right? <laughs> That's so bad. You're not supposed to invite non-native species. <laughs> That's how we get issues with lionfish, which like are huge issues in St. Croix. I don't know if it is in Miami, but it's like these really invasive species. Sorry, I'm just going off on the yeah. lionfish well, no. I mean, look, it's award season. They're talking about tar. There's that great line that like Francis Ford Coppola in a scene that was cut out of Apocalypse Now took crocodiles to a part of the Philippines yes. and now you can't swim in the river um, yes. because they just bred in the river and now they eat the natives, the people yeah. who actually live there. So, um, you know. Okay, so he brought in these these. Oh fish. yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. So I was just saying that he, you know, when you think about these uber luxurious nightclubs and the chic of Miami, so you have Miami itself as this kind of a, a very real place, but so much of the city was constructed, uh, certainly Miami Beach, constructed as this tourist haven. To but yeah, and they're they're saying, oh, we want to create this image that people have seen on TV, right. and you know, what are people expecting when they come here? They're expecting the you know hot sexy clubs and the art deco and all that stuff. So they're like, it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy or something where it's like, oh, the media has created this image and now we're going to create ourselves in the in the image of this media and, and yeah. feeding into each other. And then you get something like the movie where it's like, whoa, we're like in a Aryan Brotherhood par trailer park. Like That's not what we Not thought. on a postcard. Not on a postcard. No. Right. right. And there's so much in the city that, you know, I it it the film excited me and continues to excite me because I I think it there aren't that many great films made about Miami and there's so much more to be made and I it you know that's where people like me and Brandon come in you know yeah to to um, try to think about how what what can you tell of the city that hasn't been told before you know right when did you come around to the film like you initially saw it you were thrown back by it but like what how did you sort of come around to like appreciating it in such an interesting philosophical way as you do um well you know years ago i started thinking about you know i've been in the states for 25 years now and you know i'm, I'm currently making a film about barbados and i advocate for caribbean filmmakers but i've i increasingly over the years started thinking about my longing for home, my longing to go back to the Caribbean. And <laughs> it's funny. I started thinking about the scene with Sonny looking out over the horizon, but then also thinking about how there's similar scenes in some of man's other films, you know, uh, in say Manhunter, you know, the uh, 
the the will character he's not necessarily looking out over the height the horizon but the kind of idyllic uh beach setting that he's in at the beginning of the film before he's called back into the field i started just thinking about the moments in michael mann films where he captures that where he captures this kind of desire to escape from the rat race and because of that i it made me go back to miami vice again um i mean it created an, a bit of a a mini existential whirlpool inside myself because i'm like okay he has these characters who are longing for this place and i'm longing for that place too but i'm actually from there so what does, <laughs> what, yeah. what, does that, what does that mean but you know i don't know i just think that scene with with, with sunny looking out over the horizon it just it's one of my favorite moments in all of film honestly it, it it captures something which is yeah which is so true to just my experience mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. and so that you know thinking about that scene it, it's funny even though i had dismissed the film for a while there that scene popped up in my head i don't know i want to say maybe five six years later um and then certainly you know the work that you all have done um and and you know i think you know i've seen some writing that uh bill jed barry did for uh i guess was it new york magazine or i don't know yeah. just as as the kind of reassessment of the yeah. film happened it was like oh wait so i'm not the only one i'm not the only <laughs> one like okay okay all right yeah. okay it's bill safe it's safe to talk about this we can talk right. <laughs> bill you're is the true acolyte we he's the he's the man acolyte he's the best he writes that he there's almost no one better who writes about Michael Mann than Bilger. He's, yeah, and great friend of the show. Brandon. Um, Bilger, go ahead. I was going to ask the same question to Brandon if you were always yeah. Miami Vice pilled. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. My my, um, my experience with Miami Vice as a movie is really interesting because I, I was actually in a very, like, mournful place when I first saw this film. My, my great aunt had passed away who, who used to, like, babysit me and stuff and taught me to play poker. And I got this news on the way to see Miami Vice. Oh no. So I actually had to pull over. I remember I was on the um, on the BQE and I had like a collect myself and I was like, am I gonna still go see this movie? And I was like, yeah, go see it. And, uh, and I saw Miami Vice alone um, at the Regal UA in, uh, in Union Square in New York. And, um, uh, I was immediately transfixed with the movie. I was already sort of like uh, a man fan, um, obsessed with Heat and, and the last Mo the Mohicans. And I, I think I'd been somewhat disappointed by Collateral, which is a movie I've, I've since maybe come uh, back to a bit. Uh, that was one that had to be reclaimed for me. Mm -hmm. But from the jump, I was working against the critical consensus on Miami Vice. And indeed, for those that remember, that critical consensus was that this movie was trash. It's yes. still rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. It's like a 40-something. Oh, really? I have to look and see. I just remember that weekend talking to people about it. and people. Can just we post me? every one of these episodes as a review with our guests' names on Rotten Tomatoes, Katie? <laughs> and then just have, just have like a list and just turn the critical tide. I think there's some way we could do that, that that we have to we we have to get our podcast tomato meter approved <laughs> yeah well look um it is a 47 <laughs> it's a currently oh, a 47 on rotten uh, tomatoes how unjust but um but you know an early proponent of the movie like i remember this is 2007 or 2008 there was a piece in senses of cinema 
by a guy named John Baptiste, Baptiste Ray. Right? We are we like, had him on. We had him on the show. He's Miami incredible. In the flux or something. Gravity yes. in the flux. Gravity yeah, yeah. in the flux. Yeah. And I remember reading that and being like, yes, people <laughs> see that there is like art in this movie. That like there is, you know, and from the jump, I was like, oh, the movie kind of has this this texture that I haven't seen. Um, and I found its unique sort of juxtaposition again of these like kind of ab absurd moments of writing, like almost like cringeworthy moments of writing that nonetheless like have this potent kind of um, postmodern quality to them, you know, mixed with like utter gravity of yeah. other the, the bits of humor, the virtuosic filmmaking to be something that I think we now kind of associate with with Korean cinema to a degree with so there, there's a certain kind of sophisticated language to talk about movies like that now. But I feel like in 2006, especially with the veneer of a Hollywood blockbuster that cost $100 million, million and is being marketed in the way the movie was being marketed, people just had no idea what the fuck they were getting into. Right. Like, yeah. They panicked in the midst of that. I, I feel like there are people that, in fact, if they were watching the movie with, under a different name, in a completely different circumstance, would have responded favorably to the movie. Oh, abs I think that's totally, yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally, because it's working, like like Jason has said, like everyone has all this baggage from the show of what they're expecting from the show. And I also think the context is so important because like I've said this before, but I think people were expecting like a Starsky and Hutch because right. that was what yeah. was going on at the time, like rehabbing these- And the Dukes 80s, of Hazard, The no, Dukes of Hazard, like rehabbing these Charlie 80s Daniels. shows. Yeah. yeah, to be funny, um, you know, thrill, like more comedies than anything else. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that you talk about the way that like, that there are all these disparate elements, like it's almost like the dialogue is like in conflict with like the style. <laughs> Cause when I first saw this movie, which I have to admit was not in the movie theater, it was in a grad school class, thanks to Todd Boyd. Um, <laughs> and I was like laughing the whole time at the dialogue. <laughs> But um, but yeah, as I've you know watched it over and over again, it's like it's such a mournful film. It's a, like you, I think I stole that word from you, Brandon. Like it's such a longing. There's so much emotional existential pain going on in this film that you can't help but be like completely shattered and heartbroken at the end of it. Um, well, I but, mean, it's about people yeah. wanting, like, yearning for for greater connection with each other on some level in a way that watching again it's that's the granular subject of like a lot of the scenes in this movie the ones that aren't i mean there's plenty of scenes that are just like advancing the plot and yet the movie is kind of bookended by ricardo being asked to take care of leonetta on behalf of the john hawks character orlando um and then they have that haunting moment together where he reveals that Leonetta has been killed. And, but he doesn't reveal it. You don't need to go home. He says, I gotta go home. He's like, no, you don't go. You don't. You don't, uh, you don't need to go home. 
They said they wouldn't hurt. <laughs> they lied. And now is a quick break to hear from our sponsors. You know, you don't need to go home. And, um, and, and then, you know, so much of the content of the third act is, in fact, um, Naomi Harris's character being the woman in peril. Uh, and and um, there's this remarkable moment late in the film where Sonny uh, is sitting and listening to, um, uh, to, to uh, Jamie Foxx, and he says something to the effect of, can't believe she almost lost her life over this shit, man. Satan. Yeah. Passes the flash, guns come out. Rescue man. That's what we do. So? So, fabricated identity, and what's really up, collapses into one frame. You ready for that on this one? I absolutely am not. So why are you ever there? I'm with her 100%. She could be a white-collar money manager. She may even be true love. She's with them. Like Trudy would say, I ain't playing. Like in this very like flat and incredibly powerful way, when you think back on Sonny's own thoughts of like whether any of this is worth it, his his own attraction to the Gong Li character, Isabella, and their like kind of desire to transcend the nature of this cops and robbers, drug dealers yeah. and uh, federal agents, you know, plot that we're in. And it's almost like the movie constantly wants to like- Escape the plot. Escape that, <laughs> right. escape the confines of right. the thing that it has to deliver right. so that it can exist, you know, and- um, and so there's that question of like restlessness that you find throughout man's films, right? That's like a constant subject of these, these fucking restless men that just like <laughs> wish they could find a home with a woman, but they gotta be out in the world fucking shit up, you know? And it's like, and this is like the apotheosis of it. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's screaming from all the scenes if you're like looking for it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's well. That's it's part of like why people sometimes will be like the plot's confusing, and it's like no, like it's just vibes. Like ignore the plot, just vibes. Like yeah, no, I feel like so much of this film hinges on a dance, the dance, whether on a cosmic level or just on the the very real dance between Gong Li and Colin Farrell, um, and how all of the characters in the film are forced to confront that to reevaluate themselves. It 
everything is either now going to collapse or come together because of this, right? Because all of these people have been dealing in different levels of artifice, you know, are trapped in careers that maybe they didn't ask for, be they a cop, be they, uh, you know, a trafficker. But all of a sudden, this moment of real passion um, throws everything into some kind of existential crisis, you know? Such is the power of that dance. <laughs> and I love that when Jose Yero sees it, it's on the CCT foot footage. So it's like mediated through all of these layers right. of right. Uh, digital artifice in a way. Um, and yeah, it's like we're, he, we are him watching them within the realm of watching. So it's like all of this voyeuristic, we're, interesting, yeah. puncturing layers of media that we're, we're dealing with. We're all yeah, wanting to be Gung Lee's. We're all wanting to be Gung Lee's boyfriend, just like Jose Hero. <laughs> that that dance is a metaphor for the dance at the center of all the multiverses, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that that is the center of the. Where's that everything everywhere all at once, right? You know what I mean? Just Kong, Colin Farrell and Gong Lee. Yeah, oh my that. God! Wait, can that be the sequel? <laughs> 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 five and they're stars. like, I just five wanted to on do casting. laundry with you <laughs> forever. I just wanted to traffic drugs with you forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, so Jason, are there any other like fun when you're watching the film and you're like, wait, I know where that is, or like that looks totally different? Like any other fun oh, like Miami native insights to watching this film? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, the driving scene, you know, again at the very beginning of the film. Um, driving down 95 i mean there was a point in time where i believe that scene is either it's definitely like lower than 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 79th street it's like somewhere between 79th street and brickle a particular stretch of i-95 which i've driven a lot and which i know at some point in time i'm not sure exactly when but at some point in the last 20 years it was the deadliest stretch of roadway in america oh <laughs> Yeah, there were so many accidents that were happening there. Um, I think it's the energy of the film. The energy of the film, you know, I often say that Miami is the most desperate place in America. Uh, and I hate I hate reducing it to these things because it's so much more than, again, that can be cap than can be captured in one film. But I think part of the energy of Miami is, you know, you have so many people coming from different parts of, you know, like I... I you know, emigrated there from the Caribbean, from South America, from all over the world, really. And it is their point of entry into America, right? And it's their first shot at the American American dream, if that if that is a real thing, or if it's not, that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I know where I land on that, but again, that, that, <laughs> I digress, I digress, I digress. Um, but then you have so many people, you know, coming, I was going to say, washing up there from other parts of the United States, and it's their last shot at the American dream. And so it leads to this kind of really desperate energy, right? Like this real mm. kind of, um, it's a frontier town in many ways and it always has been. And there's probably the film, a sense of lawlessness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Anthony Yerkovich who like created the, the you know, the TV show um, with, with Michael Mann, I mean, but it, it starts with Yerkovich, you know, um, he, the thing that inspired him, you know, the MTV cop story often gets thrown around about, you know, somebody writing that on a napkin. But even before that, what he was inspired by was the fact that 
in the 80s, 20% of all unreported income in the United States came from Miami, meaning that 0.5% of the country's population was responsible for 20% of the country's under the table money. Huh. Right? So that just tells Jesus. you, and that has always kind of been the truth of the place, right? Is that it is, it is its own world. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the film, not in the cops and robbers thing, because, you know, I, I, you know, certainly have my own issues about worshiping a film that, that, that valorizes cops, but I don't think it does. I don't think it does valorize cops. Actually. Yeah. I don't think it does at all. I think, you know, we're seeing these characters confront the limitations of their job and, and going for something beyond that. But I think the energy of the film transcends crime law cops robbers all of these things um to capture this place where you're forced to confront um it's a it's a place where it that's almost in a permanent existential crisis right mm. like, i always like to say that miami has the front row seats to the apocalypse because whether it's <laughs> you know like whether it's sea level rise or or you know mass immigration like miami is on the front lines of so many of the issues that the United States is confronting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the film very much taps into that energy. It infuses every single frame of it, right? Of these yeah. characters navigating this place where anything can happen and probably will. You know, I want to ask you guys because I, you know, when from Australia, when we launched when we launched this podcast, it was like right in the throes of the first wave of the pandemic. And we've since gone on and the world's opened up and travel's possible again. But I remember at the time, you know, doing this show, talking to Katie, talking to our friends, Miami from a way, way outside its perspective was such a fascinating entity because it was like not only a city, but a state of Florida became this place that was like, we are not prescribing <laughs> to any of the medical advice or the designations that this is a pandemic is happening. And it was one of those things where like, people flocked to Miami for that very thing of we're kind of like morally, very morally ambivalent place of like, no, you can come down here and we'll still be open and we'll still make money. And people like flocked there, did things. The pandemic came and went, but I feel like Miami as a case study almost like underscored some of the like great moral like moral quandary that this movie talks about, which is just like it exists and we are living by our own rules and there are no rules in Miami. There's like no rules. You're going to come down here and live. And I feel like that happened. And then now, like as we reach 2023 and, you know, the world from that perspective is sort of stabilized. I wonder if like the entire makeup of the city has changed or evolved again because of like that. Again, like you said, this like it was a, a nexus for people just flooding to the Southern States to go and live their lives a certain way during the pandemic that like other places just didn't operate that way. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the stepping back outside after being in lockdown for, you know, year, two years, so much of the city changed during the pandemic. The overdevelopment was out of control. There was a severe population boom. Miami has one of the worst housing crises in the country right now. Um, it's a bit sad, but, you know, the thing that I remind myself is that this has been a part of 
what the city always was. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, the city is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I think the, the, the city is the conflict at the heart of Miami is always what is actually there, right? Which is this, in, this in, incredible collision of cultures, people from all over the Caribbean, South America, you know, um, the Southern United States, and this imposed industrial chic, industrial, sexy, sophisticated kind of thing that has kind of gone into mass overdrive over the last two years with with this influx of money and people and i think that increasingly that lawlessness is being um there are only certain people who are able to get away with that mm. it feels like right like because a lot of people are being pushed out right and so the beautiful parts of miami I, I don't know i hope this isn't getting too philosophical or whatnot but i mean that 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 energy that spirit is something that that i love about miami right it's is is you know the things that you can experience there as you know like it's such a caribbean city right like i can experience aspects of caribbean culture there in a way that i can't experience anywhere else in the united states right to some degree new orleans but you know, but increasingly because it's because of the gentrification, because of the development, a lot of that is being pushed out. So while it is still a lawless free for all um, to some degree, for whom? Yes, you know? that's yes. a good point. Yeah. Is it, is it is it like Bitcoin bros? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like if it's just them, if it's just them, then that's then that's a problem. Those Bitcoin know? bros, they're all vertically integrated by the same right, by the, right. from the from the outside. Brandon, no you... swag. No. Sorry. I have no. a question. I'm curious. Do you feel like there's aspects of of a past Miami that you can see in this 17 year old film that has been a victim of what you're describing at all? Um, I don't know. There's a scene. Yeah, I mean, I I feel as if there's certainly a lot more high rises. It's becoming more of a condo canyon. I mean, there's that Solange song, you know, "Cranes in the Sky," uh, which was actually inspired by a trip that she took to Miami. Apparently, I mean, there are more cranes in the sky than ever. I mean, my apartment. Um, I'm I'm by coastal these days. Right now, I'm recording in California, but I go back and forth between Miami. Like my apartment in Miami is not far from overtone which is there there are one or two scenes shot there yeah, the, the, the safe house is in overtown where they, the safe house is in overtown and they they've stolen his drugs and are acting like they found them mm. yes right I so that, when i saw that scene it's like that's the first time we see an art deco building yes and it's mm -hmm. a di in disrepair <laughs> and it's this, you know uh black part of miami that you yeah. know we don't associate with the show per se or with like the image of Right. of Miami that the show, as you suggested, then cultivated a certain kind of Miami. Um, yeah. But I, I couldn't help but think this time around watching it like, oh, I wonder if that's been gentrified. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, well, I was going to oh say, God. you know, like that, that safe house is about 15 blocks from my apartment. I don't expect, expect that my apartment is going to be around. I don't think I'm going to have it more than another year because of the development that's happening in the neighborhood. They're high rises. Like my apartment is a two story building is wow. in a two-story building and their high rises going up on either side of it it's about to become the house from up <laughs> uh, and you know and i think that you know it i don't think my landlord he's he really believes in preservation 
um i don't think that 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 is long for the world he's already told me he's like yeah i don't know how long i'm going to be able to fight off these developers and so places like the safe house wow. you know that, that's a popular location yeah. you see it in many different miami films and tv shows and whatnot um, but that's probably not long for the world um so i think yeah places like that are certainly i watch the film and i'm like yeah this really is an important document because much of this will not exist much longer there's a there's a city in australia in brisbane which is in queensland one of our northern states and unlike sydney and melbourne for folks internationally mm -hmm. that you've heard of like there are still parts of sydney that are old and still parts of melbourne that are old like <laughs> There's like industrial flavors, times past where buildings have been preserved and they've been on, oh you know, um, conservation lists and stuff like that. So you can sort of gut the insides out of them, but the original facades and things like that have to stay the same. And Brisbane doesn't have that ethos. <laughs> Brisbane, I think famously, uh, they say that it gets leveled every 10 years and then new high, high rises go up. Like it has no personality because it's just like someone that's constantly getting cosmetic surgery. Like it doesn't have, there's no like, there's no sense of what old brisbane used to look like because they just level it um but yeah I, I feel like that's you know that's a tragedy that we you know everyone is just dealing with right now in all of the contemporary you know major cities because it's just like how do we increase population how do we keep gentrifying and like you know these bland utterly bland um contemporary buildings just keep popping up and uh and they take away all the personality or like they they their mere imposition is like immediately disrupts the culture that made that spot amazing yeah. once i think it, it just drawing on everything we've talked about this episode like it just seems to me like the uh, we started off talking about miami as as a liminal space and that it seems like you kind of have to there's like a constant churn of existential crisis <laughs> that is like maybe reflected in the landscape it's a young city um and it sort of seems like you kind of have to be okay with the shifting sands of time which i think is reflected in this film and also reflected in i think a lot of michael mann's work and that um you know just that sort of poignancy of, of like being okay with non-attachment and and constant change and i also think like the environment has something to do with that too like you can't be too attached to something if a hurricane's gonna come through. Yes. <laughs> so um, uh, I just think it's just all of these philosophical themes and and ideas about time and change and existentialism. I think are like so beautiful to talk about, even though there is a deep sort of like sorrow and sadness behind it as well. Yeah, I think the the film and the city and all of these things ask you to, you know, identify with that turn at the center of it all right to be the eye of the hurricane yeah. to be the what is the eye of the hurricane or are, 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 are the dance at the center of it all right yes the eye of the hurricane yes. is yes. the salsa dance at the center <laughs> <laughs> now brandon do you feel the necessity because as katie pointed out this movie still devastatingly only has 47 percent on rotten tomatoes could could we ever convince you to relapse back into film criticism just to just to post a review of miami vice to get you know help bump those numbers back up those rookie numbers of 47 this travesty and right or wrong that is uh yeah that is a blot <laughs> i i am certainly open i'm certainly open to it. um uh 
you know, I, I, I haven't had the occasion to write about this movie yet, but uh, perhaps it will occur in, in, the, in the future. Um, I would love to get it over 50%. <laughs> that's, I could be that person to you. That's the goal. Right. What we here's what we need. There's been a proliferation, as Blake, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, of uh, people standing Colin Farrell and then saying, "Oh, have you heard of this movie, Miami Vice?" And as I like to say, every time an article is published on some website where they like reappreciate Miami Vice and don't mention our podcast, <laughs> we go stronger and more powerful. <laughs> Or, or that, or that um, this is the other thing, and it's not even about the podcast. It's just about people writing the same article that Kim Masters wrote yes. more than a decade ago <laughs> over and again without any of the like. And thank you so much to all the listeners and contributors and supporters of this show. Like, we've myth busted so many things. Like, if you just listen to the Jaffet Gordon episodes, you could write a pretty sexy article um and one that would probably get quite a few <laughs> clicks because i can imagine an seo title for some of the revelations that came up in that double episode would be pretty spicy indeed <laughs> but it's just like for the love of god if you're going to write about miami vice just listen to a couple of the episodes with people we've spoken to like 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 elliot Coretz, who um was a sound designer and one of the planes like flying and almost buzzing him with a propeller. Like, come on, like just add some detail that actually means something. If you, <laughs> God, I know these people are only getting paid $25 to write. Hey, check out Miami vice. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Just the... Fair enough. Where is, where is the memoir from Colin Farrell's rehab counselor in the wake of Miami vice? You know, that's the, the Holy grail. That has, that's where all the secrets are where the, the bodies are buried. Oh, my God. So, um, mail at one com. Mail at oneheatminute.com. Yes. Well, I, I'm just crossing my fingers that I cross paths with Colin during award season so that I can just be like, hey, Colin. <laughs> In that shirt. In your Miami nice. Yes. Scene for Mojito shirt. You must yeah. immediately get that. Um, Guys, before we wrap up, did uh, let's start with you, Brandon. Was there anything else that, and casting our minds way back to eating um, chocolate covered pretzels and um, talking about Michael Mann rankings with Katie? Is there any other stuff that you know is still like deeply resonant for you? Because I feel like we're all in that nexus point, that gravity of the flux moment from Jean Baptiste Lorray of like Colin Farrell looking out the window and having these. Um, existential crisis, but any other moments, like favorite moments and things like that, that you, that resonate with you, not only as a person who's previously recovering from being a film critic, but like as a film producer, something that you would assign, like, go, okay, just watch this scene, not this, um, not the whole movie. I just love how consistently surprising certain characterizations are in the, yes. in the movie. Um, that, that was something that occurred to me this last time watching it. So for instance, when we first meet um, Montoya, He's the most polite guy in the movie. <laughs> yeah, by far. He's, he's such a like sweetheart. He's like, I hope your families are well, <laughs> and that we never see each other again, and we all get very rich. And you know, Katie, you're we like, should really close oh, the I, show like that from now on. <laughs> you want him to like come over for dinner, you know? Like, <laughs> and then later, 
there's this remarkable moment like this i i, I would say that in general like michael mann's movies are like sex positive movies oh yeah um, i would also say that this is perhaps a sex positive movie but one thing that i find so interesting about the relationship between montoya and isabella is that sense that like we feel like when she first chooses to run off a counter oh maybe she's really off off the reservation here like this is going to be the rift only to have that remarkable scene where they're together and he's like so should we kill this guy or should we keep working with them and she's like well you know i had sex with him in cuba and they're reliable but like you could kill him i don't know but <laughs> and you're like is she like working him in that moment like by saying like yo i fucked him and you can kill him Right, right, right. But I don't want you to kill him. So by me saying that you can, it shows that I'm still loyal to you. And then there's that moment right after the scene ends with an implied, uh, uh, you know, the beginning of a sexual act between them. Right. Um, and it just provides this remarkable complexity to the characters that, like, you feel like you understand what's happening between them and amidst them, and then it deepens and is complicated. And that happens throughout the movie in a way that I think is, um, that I, I'd maybe forgotten to an extent in the you know, six or seven years since I- I love that moment where he's, he re, he's, he's, he's got the international news on and it's got all the stock prices on the ticker on the television. And she tells him that story and he's reading it. He's reading a paper and his eyes don't even come up. She's like, I, I slept with him in Miami or I slept with him in Cuba. And he's like, and? Like he just doesn't like maybe there's a fleck of emotion that crosses his eyes, but Louis Tozar, who plays Archangel de Jesus Montoya, I just love. I'm like, that's a that's a baller. Like you, your girl just told you. An unflappability that we all wish we could, you know. A control, <laughs> a control, yeah, a control, a level of just like ant. Okay, yep, yep, all right. Yeah, we'll do one more deal with him. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, I mean that's one aspect, and um. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 again, I forgot how funny the movie was, weirdly, at, in points. And I, um, I never really connected the theme of home or, or uh, inability to find a home to find the, like a sort of stability amidst this, um, this imperiled city, these, this, uh, lethal line of work that feels, you know somewhat pointless like at that at this point in his career man has made several movies that kind of show you both sides of a criminal element right or like a the the sense obviously in heat that the cops and robbers are but you know two sides of the same coin like that's a theme he's visited before but this was the first time where i felt like maybe he's saying like these characters are more relevant than the circumstances they're in yes and and the way he chose to say that amidst what was at that point the biggest movie of his career um yeah i didn't i you know i just think it's really laudable it's a unusual thing in film history i mean the film really speaks to this idea that there is something beyond all of this and i think one of the strange ways that he does it it's a blink and you'll miss it moment is the fact that Gong Li's character you know she mentions that um her mother was in Angola 
Mm-hmm. You know, like Michael Mann has this concern with 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 the third world, which is again this kind of blink and you'll miss it thing. It's there in the director's cut of Ali as well, right? The scenes that got cut from the theatrical version have to do with the murder of Patrice Lumumba, uh, president of the Congo, right? So his politics, you know, on the surface you may think, oh, this is, you know, a propaganda movie, but it's you know, his. You know, Gong Li's character is the daughter of somebody who was reaching for a life beyond imperialism. And these, you know, when when Colin Sonny talks to her about maybe meeting up with her at some point after they've escaped all of this, right? Is he just talking about the case? Or is he talking about the current world order, right? Is he talking about... um third world utopia i like to think he is you know you know what i mean like i like i like to think he is like what are these you know this geopolitical maze that 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 they're trapped in and are forced to act out certain roles on this chessboard and they're trying to escape that right mm-hmm. and so i mean i think the last place that you would expect to find um an entry point into a conversation about the angolan war is a miami vice movie but it's there it's there you know um yes i love that michael mann easter eggs are like these little moments of like oh he's actually talking about like colonialism and geopolitical issues and like i because i love finding those little things too in his work where it's like oh he's like interested in this place that is like a convergence of cultures even if it's not like obviously miami is like the major one of that but even like the ciudad del este little uh journey and um, the way he goes back there in Heat too, and um, referencing, yeah, like you know her background and as a Chinese Cuban person and Angola and all these little, it's like those are the little things you have to find in Michael Mann movies are his little uh, political comments. I right. I like Easter eggs like that, and I hate Easter eggs that introduce new fucking Marvel characters. Like who gives a shit? <laughs> who cares? Right. Well, I was actually thinking about that with like the when we were talking about the 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 nature of this being such a like resistant sequel or i don't know what to to call it reboot like everybody wants a legacy sequel now where they can go it's that guy it's that guy like i call it like pointing at the screen which like i, the, I saw the, the once upon a ghostbusters once, once upon a time in hollywood yes leonardo hey i yeah so like when i saw like the new ghostbusters legacy sequel there was a girl in front of me who just spent the whole time like pointing at the screen at like the marshmallow guy and like various other things i'm like no i hate pointing cinema like if that's what this is but it's like you know man completely went the opposite direction in miami vice like you're waiting to go where's the crocodile and uh there's no crocodile there's no crocodile so He's uh he's he's resisting that so much and being like no I need you to think about all of these other issues and like have an existential crisis at the same time <laughs> and also it's not propaganda like we, we talked about this a lot um, in June of 2020 because I was sort of wrestling with you know covering this movie but like I think this movie is like there's nothing about the the police that is like valorized here that right, is right glorified right. it's like this looks like it sucks yeah and everyone's having an ethical quandary um and trying to escape being a police officer and going so deep undercover yeah. that you forget your identity as a police officer yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and i just want to give one small shout out to you know um the love scene uh 
between Naomi Harris and Jamie Foxx. I mean, the last place that I, you know, there was black cinema that, you know, in there was a lot more black cinema in the 90s, I feel like early 90s, like say Love Jones and, you know, where you had the last place I would have expected to see a black love scene with India Ari playing. <laughs> That's very right? true. That was, the, that was the last, you know, and I'm just, you know, always struck when I rewatch it, just by, by how tender that scene is, you know, you know, if, even from the shower scene, you know, right before. Um, is there anything more tender than the little slap on the back to, hey, turn around, let me soap up your back? You know, like, it's it's just a beautiful little moment, you know, it's so human, it's so real. Um, yeah. And it's real. Yeah. You and I first started talking about this movie in reference to the Gong Lee sex scene yes. as well, while eating pretzels which in my mind is like one of the most remarkable sex scenes in the movies too um the tears in her in the corners of her and they're walking on the bed it's just breathtaking breathtaking stuff um most romantic getaway ever when he puts her seatbelt on and then he's like i'm gonna rev it up to 120 miles per hour yeah the fact that the film is just asking you to feel something right as the world is becoming yeah. just so much more we're spending so much time you know thank you for technology because we wouldn't be having this session right now were it not for that right but as we just kind of get so much more hemmed in by the grid that are that the characters are trying to escape it's almost like they're you know in those moments they're trying to show us a way out right a vortex out to really just feel something you know all we yes. just gotta do is get that speedboat, Jason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're getting around in emails and film finance. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll get the speedboat from Sydney, <laughs> shoot it across the Pacific, pick up Katie on the way, and we'll come over to Third Horizon. I would we'll love to be on a speedboat. We'll come, oh, and and fly, fly, <laughs> yeah. fly over to Third Horizon. It, that, that would, you know, it'd be in the top five of the 25 coolest film festivals of all time. If you, if you rode in on a freaking Miami Vice speedboat, that would be the best. Oh my God. Time. Let's do it at the horizon. <laughs> I feel like there should be like a Miami nice, like live podcast yeah. recording. Uh, in Miami, you know? Let's, let's talk. We can, we can make something happen. Um, we can make something happen. Yeah. Yeah. Th this, okay. this is where it gets real. This is where yeah. this is where dreams become a reality. No, uh, yeah, genuinely, we've got we've actually. Yeah, no, I'm, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, let's let's make let's yeah let's make let's make something happen. Let's make it happen. I, I mean, I I feel like I need to go to Miami and do the, like do do the scouting tour of whatever still exists, Jason. Of like whatever still exists, go around, walk the streets, go to a nightclub, order a mojito flirt with a waitress yeah. you know like uh make my friends laugh it feels like it's you know kate katie's probably been able to do that in her life but i haven't been able to do that yet so it's, yes. it's definitely on a bucket we'll list. get we'll get you there we'll get Yay. You. <laughs> i am i am committing to that. oh wow well. wow we are, we are recording this on wednesday january the 18th you heard yes. it here first, <laughs> you heard yes. it here first. Wow. Scary and exciting. Um, guys, I, I want to say, look, thank you so much. You've mixed the, um, you've, you've run the Miami nice gauntlet, which is to be incredibly thoughtful, um, incredibly inspiring in your like depths of understanding and relatability of this movie, but also get to be a little bit pervy, um, with Katie and I, which we deeply appreciate. And, um, 
so and uh, so thank you so much so thank you just so much and uh, uh we're just so happy that if if any of what we do um connects with people especially about this movie that gives us so much joy that's a real treat i think Br brandon thank you for clipping jason's belt in the speedboat of uh this podcast invitation my pleasure man my jason's pleasure. beautiful <laughs> hair whipping in the breeze looking at you yeah man <laughs> no well thank you thank you too for for you know the ongoing work um it is it is such a treat for me always um and thank you brandon for for bringing me as your plus one to the party well i was just gonna say thank you guys and um brandon i'm just so glad we uh connected about this at that at that screening last fall um but it would have happened eventually it was inevitable you got some good notes four chocolate covered pretzels and a beer only so you know hey he got some good notes from us i'm gonna say he got some good notes yeah no bless you guys for doing that that makes that really heartening for me that you guys are doing that um I've got a dear friend who's just made a short film and I was one of the first people to watch it. So I, I, I've, I had that little mini experience and I'm so excited for people to see her short. So, um, but yeah, great stuff. Love it. Thank you guys for being a part of the show. Everyone listening. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode of Miami nice. And who knows, we might be flailing open our legs and crying just a little bit, but we'll be sexual and tender with you as always. <laughs> see you in Miami. <laughs> Oh <laughs>20th century movie it feels like something david lean would have done or tried to do uh when he still had that kind of currency and even then he might not have succeeded it's incredible because like if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of lost you can just watch fearless <laughs> not a week goes by that i don't think of the ending of gallipoli it's left a mark a uh, year of living dangerously uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. 
like I don't think it's actually possible to make an. They say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Yes. Because no one watches that movie then thinks I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced, like bar none, hands down. Like no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really Titanic filmmakers and some really Titanic films so far, but I, I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way. And we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air. Yes. Because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A game repeatedly to <laughs> many properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, the Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about the Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's... Uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That that's the movie that I wanted to see. Ten of those, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. And God bless you, but Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things. Again, I I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> But there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you, you, pull, you pull out of this, Blake. That's right, our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander.